Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers, the podcast from Seven Hills, where we hear from inspirational people with a passion to make a difference. Now, my guest today defines a hero as someone who takes action with a loving heart. In doing so, she references the legendary lives of, among others, Nelson Mandela and Malala. And Kerry Kennedy knows a thing or two about the subject. As president of Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights, she leads an organization that seeks to affect change through human rights advocacy for social justice. And as the daughter of the late Senator Robert F. Kennedy, she cites her father as her inspiration, as indeed he is to people all over the world. Kerry, welcome to Changemakers. An absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I'd love to start with a question about activism in 2020, um, your, your sort of work um, in a tumultuous year of change. Yeah, you know, um, I think there has been so much uh, change this year and so much demand for change, and it's really interesting. I think um, because of corona, so many people were forced to stay home and in isolation and feeling like they're victims, that this thing is there, it's dangerous, it's scary, they don't know uh, their job security is at risk, um, their kids are home, the education is kind of failing, what is happening? And they're feeling there's nothing I can do about it. All I can do about it is wear a mask. And that just seems so insufficient. And then George mm. Floyd is killed, at, murdered eight and a half minutes on television. We saw it again and again and again with the resonating with the lynchings, the history of lynchings in our country. And people said, I can do something. And they were invited to march. And people said, this, now I can do something. And I'm getting involved and I'm getting engaged and I'm demanding change. And that's what happened. And I think that brought about this uh, extraordinary demand for change, not just in policing, but in government, in the corporate field, in investing, in the school systems, in every aspect of our lives. We have we are not going to allow this injustice to go on. You get the sense that this has been building. Um, I, I remember the last time you and I were together. Um, you showed a, um, a video um, called "I Cannot Stand Aside," which, which is which is based on the presidential run of your father. But it speaks to activism. Um, it's it speaks to change. It speaks to the possibility that change may come. Do you feel hopeful about that future, or or how dangerous is it right now? A lot of people feel quite hopeless still. I mean, where, where do you stand on, on things at the at the moment? Well, I feel a tremendous amount of hope. So I think, I mean, let's just be really clear about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement in our country. I think that the reason it's been effective is not just, not only because people are demanding change, but also because for the last five years, the Black Lives Matter movement has been doing the hard work of community organizing across the country, along with uh, with other Black-led local community organizing uh, groups. So they built the you know the superstructure on which this stands. But I think uh, I have hope, and this is why 
when I started working in human rights uh, in the 1980s, all of Latin America was under right-wing military dictatorships. Today, there's not one left standing. All of Eastern Europe was under communism. Today, there's not a communist government left. All of South Africa was at the height of apartheid. Today, South Africa has had a series of freely elected governments elected by a majority of their people. Women's rights was not on the international agenda at all. Today, women's, the Women's Rights Convention, CEDAW, has been ratified by 183 countries. I mean, all of these different movements happen not because governments or multinational corporations or armies wanted them to. All those huge forces that we think own all the power tried to stop them. The wealthiest people in those countries tried to stop this. The power structures tried to stop it, but they happened because small groups of determined people created change. That's always that's where that's where liberty always comes from, and that's what's happening. That's what you see around the world today. You know, it's quite it's quite a to do list for an organization um, committed to human rights. Just give us a sense of some of the things that, that you're working on. I mean, just one one of the things I was reading about was the work you're doing with Colin Kaepernick on, on the Funds for Freedom Partnership. Just just a quick tour of some of some of the highlights that you're looking at. Yeah, so um, you know, we we do a, a lot of work around the world uh holding governments accountable for for women's rights, for abuses of women's rights, for uh, transgender rights, for sexual minorities. Like when Uganda passed a law that made homosexuality punishable by life in prison without parole, we worked with local lawyers. We overturned that law. Um, and we have about 35 uh, uh, similar lawsuits at any given time. We've never lost a case. So we do that work. Um, we do a lot of work in the investment community. Today, of the 100 largest uh, uh, economies on earth, 70 of them are corporations. So five years ago, 50 of them, 70 of them. So corporations are more and more powerful than governments. And um, so we need to hold them to account. We do that through the largest investors in those corporations. I was going to say, is, is that an easy thing to do? In t I mean, what's easier to hold to account, a business or a government? Well, I think there's there they have different constituencies and different ways of going about doing it. But we've found that the investment community is open to change. Uh, there's a lot of leaders in the investment community that uh, advocate for change. And now, you know, there's a real demand for change. But there's a long way to go. In a $70 trillion uh, investment community, which that controls uh, basically the world's economy, about $70 trillion, um, how much of that money is invested in women and minority-owned firms? The answer is 1.3%. All the rest of it is controlled by old white men. All of it. So... Until we get that community to drastically change, um, you know, even if we get all the police and all the, the criminal legal reform and it's perfect tomorrow, we'll still be in the same place because 
There's no investment in the black community. There's no investment in communities of color, in places of poverty, in indigenous communities with women. I mean, 1.3% for all women and minority-owned firms. Mm. I mean, there, there is an opportunity, I guess, as you're saying, for leaders to step up right now, especially, especially in business. Now, tell us a little bit about the work you're doing um, in the UK, because you've got work in schools. Um, there is a, a Hope Festival next year. would love to know a bit more about, about that side of things. Sure. We're really excited. We're working in Manchester, an, an extraordinary city with incredible, you know, it was the heart of the industrial revolution. It was a place where um, where people went on strike in solidarity with uh, with the um, with slaves in the United States, and they had the great starvation there in Manchester because um, people refused to go to work uh, using the cotton that was made by slaves. So an incredible history. Um, and we are putting on a four-day festival. It will include a day when we just work in schools around Greater Manchester. Then it will include a business day where we're working with business leaders on how to integrate social justice into the work that they do. And then we'll have two days of plays and poetry and um, art and activism around human rights, which we're very, very, very excited about. I, I love the focus on on the next generation. I mean, as, as a dad of two girls, I mean, I think the focus on bringing that message in into schools early. I mean, that's such a critical part of your work, isn't it? Yes, it really is. So we uh, have education materials that go from kindergarten through law school. Um, they will reach about um, about uh, 35 million students online this year and many, many thousands and thousands more actually taught by their teachers in their schools. And um, we have 12 schools in the UK, uh, and we're planning to expand to about 30 schools in the next couple of years. Any of your listeners are interested, we'd love to have you involved. Brilliant. We're going to put we're going to put lots of links up with this episode, including your own playlists, lockdown, uh, lockdown inspirations, and and many other things. Let, let's turn let's turn to to your father, if we may. Um, I, I love the quote from Arthur Schlesinger, who described him as a as a romantic, stubbornly disguised as a realist. I, I'd love to know if that's your memory of of him, um, and indeed, what part of that character do you think you've inherited? Oh, well, you know, I think when I think about my dad, the thing that I think is really so important about him is on April 4th, 1968, he was um, he was going to speak at a rally in the largest black neighborhood in uh, Indianapolis. Um, and the he learned that Martin Luther King had been murdered. The mayor called him and said, you can't go there. The white mayor, you can't go there. It's too dangerous. 125 cities across the country are already going up in flames. Uh, we've got a crowd of 3,000 uh, uh, African-Americans. Please don't go. And my father said, you know, Mr. Mayor, you might not want to go there, but I'm going because and daddy felt like he 
he had worked with the black community for years and years and years. He had listened. He had learned from young people uh, like John Lewis, who organized that rally. And he went and he spoke and he spoke from his heart. And he said, you know, for those of you who are angered at the injustice of this act, I can just say that I too know what it feels like because I had a member of my family killed with white men with a gun. And, you know, it's hard to imagine a, a presidential candidate saying something empathizing with a crowd that's a, that's ready to riot. But he, um, he, he really did not only understand that pain and articulate it, but he had such a rich, long history of listening to the black community and listening to black leaders in community. And that gave him, you know, it was that moral imagination that really made such a big difference. I, I was going to say, I love that phrase, moral imagination, because I think that captured the beauty of the prose. I mean, in that speech, when, when he summoned, you know, inspiration from the Greeks, pain which cannot forget, that from despair comes comes wisdom. There was something that actually, that the, the progress demanded courage, that it wasn't easily given. Was that something, was there something about that ethic in, in his thinking, do you think, that, that actually, this, this wasn't an easy life, that actually things had to be fought for? Well, I think, you know, he really went through a terrible, terrible morning when he is when his brother, Uncle Jack, was was murdered and that the Greeks spoke wisely to him and he listened carefully to that. But what was interesting really was the next day, you know, everybody loves that speech he gave in Indianapolis and it's so important, but the speech he gave the next day to me is, is more important in a lot of ways because that night, as I said, 125 cities went up in flames and then the white power structure across the United States responded by saying, now we owe nothing to the black community because they've resorted to violence. And um, my father wanted to counter that argument. So he gave this speech at this Cleveland City Club, which is the bastion of white power. And he talked about the structures of violence and that they their power sat on top of structures of violence that have been here for hundreds of years and have repress the black community and until they undo those structures this is they can expect more of this to come and um he talked about you know an education structure where um where there are no books in schools and housing that is ridden by rats and unavailable to people and health care that's non-existent and i think everything he said in that speech is true today what would he make of today if you could fast forward him to, to I mean, I mean, obviously he stood for the new frontier, the idea of a different way of different things. I mean, if he was to, you know, fast forward, what, 52 years later, what, what do you think he'd make of it? I think, like I said, he'd say we've we've made strides, um, but we have to undo the structures of racism, which we have not undone. 
and um, those are still existing. And they and you know the populism that's sweeping the world is extremely dangerous, and it threatens democracy. It threatens the uh, all the structures that were put in place in the wake of World War II to stop atrocities. Um, and I think that he would say we have to defund the police. <laughs> you know, let's start there. Do you think he would have gone that far as a former attorney general? Yeah, I do. Because it was a lot of what he was doing when he was Senate. It's not really very far off. If you go back and read his speeches, for instance, um, one of the big issues that we face in the United States is the bail system, which is very, very, very uh, unfair to anybody it's, uh, living in poverty. And he got rid of the bail system at the federal level. We have a federal system and a state system. And uh, as attorney general, then as the United States senator, he did away with bail. We're still suffering from bail at the state level. And it's an issue you're campaigning on right now with with COVID-19. With with uh, Colin Kaepernick, as you pointed out, when you are um, arrested for a crime in New York, you're taken before a judge and the judge sets bail. The bail is set based on your likelihood to show up for trial. So it's not about dangerousness, not about whether or not you might commit another crime, only whether or not you're a flight risk. That bail if you are wealthy and you can pay the bill, you go home to your job, to your family, to prepare for trial. If you do not have the resources, if you're too poor to make bail, only because of your poverty, you are not allowed to go home. You are sent to jail mm -hmm. and you're held in jail until you show up to trial. So um, when Harvey Weinstein who was accused by 90 women of rape and sexual assault, paid his million-dollar bill. He was allowed to go home. But other people, we just bailed a woman out for because she couldn't, she didn't have $25 to pay the bail because of unpaid parking tickets. And so she's sitting in jail you know, with the threat of dying from coronavirus because of $25, that's only about poverty. So we are trying to stop the bail system, which my father did in, in uh, 1966 at the federal level. We're trying to stop it. But in the meantime, we are working with Colin Kaepernick to pay people's bail, particularly peaceful protesters who are thrown in jail because of the Black Lives Matter protests. You mentioned Congressman John Lewis earlier. I mean, in his in his forthcoming book, Good Trouble, it, it, I, I was struggling is not a struggle that lasts for a few days, a few weeks, a few years. It's a struggle of a lifetime. I mean, that it does sound, Kerry, like that's very much that what you're involved with. I mean, so many things to put right. I mean, how quickly do you think things could move in the positive direction that you want to see them go? Well, I think there's a lot that's going on. You know, I think um, if you look at a company like PayPal that has just made a, a commitment of $538 million 
to invest in Black-owned businesses and uh, address uh, racism. You look at the work that um, the head of my board, Robert Smith, the chair of Vista Equity Partners, is doing, and that's to get the 10 largest banks in the United States to give 2% of their profits each year over a 10-year period to invest in Black-owned businesses. And that will create, that alone would create $1.5 trillion in additional uh, economy to our country. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. So I think, and there's, and it's gaining traction and people are interested in wanting to do things. And I think, you know, there are other companies that, like Nike, that have started to make a difference on these issues. And and others. So uh, I I feel very positive. I think we've got a long way to go, but I'm excited about what's happening now. Talking about signs of being positive, I want to talk about the Kennedy home because you described um, in your uh, in your list of um, what you're listening to in the <laughs> lockdown. You said our house has become an eclectic mix of protest tracks from the '60s, '80s dance, modern pop, and current rap. Who's got who's got control of iTunes um, in your house, Kerry? <laughs> well, I have. I'm actually isolating in place, but it's sort of a, an odd isolation because there are twelve of us living here together, um, and you know they span from twenty three years old who just graduated from college a couple of weeks ago to uh 78 years old so <laughs> and so we've got frank sinatra and we've got uh bob dylan and we've got beyonce and you know all sorts of different people going on here <laughs> having read you know quite a bit about your family is that you get a sense of energy and noise being one of 11 kids that actually that's a big part of the of the background in terms of the community. I mean, is 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 that is that a fair reading of it? Do you think? Yes, <laughs> there's a lot of us, and we're used to having a lot of us around. So right here, right now, I'm in Hyannisport, which is my, you know, the home that I, the community I grew up in, and the community my father grew up in. And um, there, I think there are about ten houses owned by my cousins and and siblings and each one of them has about 12 people in them so there's a lot of us <laughs> it's a big party and now we're all isolating so that we don't spread corona to each other so it's kind of odd because we i know my sister's down the street but i'm not really seeing her because we're trying to protect the community and that togetherness i mean i you know we, we spoke earlier about the, the, the legacy, I guess, of the message that the, the the one that you are sharing, but I guess the message that goes back from from the families is, is it leaves a world of people that are, who are on our side is 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 um, is I think how you described it. In terms of that that message, in terms of the future, the ripples of hope, if you will, for twenty twenty and beyond a world of coronavirus. Just a final word in terms of how you see things from here on in, in terms of that future journey, the poetic prose of a Kennedy to conclude, perhaps? Honestly, I think that, um, look, the Sustainable Development Goals 
I I think there are two that are on track and the rest of them, the other 15 are not on track to, um, to fulfillment. We've got a long way to go in our communities, in our countries, and in our world. But that said, I kind of feel maybe because of this isolation during Corona that people have slowed down, have had a chance to breathe, to reacquaint themselves with their families, um, and to under and to understand what's really important and to long for the earth, to long to take a walk outside and to see trees and, and flowers. And I think there is this moment of kind of reappreciation of community, connection, as I say, the earth. And this is our moment to take that loving, kind energy and say, that's the world we want to create, and we are going to work towards that world. We're going to make that world happen. Kerry, you absolutely nailed it. You didn't let me down. That's a beautiful way to conclude um, this episode of Changemakers. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Now, come my friends, tis not too late to seek a newer world. It's the call from Tennyson's Ulysses, and it inspired the presidential run for Senator Robert Kennedy in 1968. And I guess that optimistic and hopeful quest for a newer world is as ins inspirational a ripple of hope then as it is now, as we've just heard from Kerry there. I'll see you for the next Changemakers. Please do join me then.